had to be loud and do things dramatic to even make an issue in New York. So I had to be a loud mouth. That was part of the strategy. I think that's one of the reasons I was, for so long, was uh, so controversial. That's Reverend Al Sharpton explaining why he became known and notorious for his loud style of activism. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. People called me to blow up issues that nobody else would deal with. I'm the blow up man and I don't apologize for that. I spoke to Sharpton about his life, his work, and a new documentary film called Loudmouth, which chronicles his evolution from his early days marching against racial violence in New York City in the 1980s. Here we stand in New York City, Howard Beach. To his role as a national leader and political power player today. And some of the controversies that have come up along the way. This was Sharpton in the late 1980s. And we promised this family that we'll fight until hell freezes over and bring justice to Tawana Brown. This is Sharpton today. I have no evidence that I was misled. People want me to redo a case rather than deal with why I was involved with the case. Sharpton is unapologetic about standing by 15-year-old Tawana Brawley, even after a grand jury found the black teen lied about being abducted and raped by white men. What am I apologizing for? Should I apologize for believing the Central Park Five? The Brawley case aside, Sharpton thinks time and experience have altered his style and perspective. My tactics didn't change, but I didn't allow myself to use excessive language. So where does this now elder statesman of the American Civil Rights Movement see the pursuit of progress going next? Who's your successor? The Bible says a good farmer, sower of seeds, you cast your seeds. Some are going to hit stone, some will hit fertile ground. Whoever grows, we'll see. Reverend Al Sharpton, welcome to Firing Line. Well, thank you. You have been on the front pages and the front lines for more than 50 years. As you look back, how do you describe your life's work? I would describe my life's work as a minister whose ministry was social justice. My first calling in life was to be a preacher. And I've, uh, as I got into my preteen years, into my early teen years, I uh, felt this compulsion to do social justice, civil rights. And uh, I decided very young, I wasn't interested in a, a particular church or a particular parish. I was a member one and licensed by one, but I wanted to be in the social justice movement from a ministerial point of view. That's what I see my life work as then and now. You actually preached when you were four years old. That's correct. How? Uh, I, I, I don't know, but no, I would say I was a member of Washington Temple Church of God in Christ, Pentecostal church, largest black Pentecostal denomination in the world. And uh, I was a member of what was called the Junior Usher Board. And we'd give people the programs when they'd come to church, help see them. We were kids. And uh, I remember we had an anniversary program when I was four. And uh, the adult advisor, her name was Hazel Griffin, I remember her name, said, what do y'all want to do on the program? Ronnie Dyson, who later became a star on Broadway in the play Hair, 
said he wanted to read a poem. He was about three years older than me. He was about seven. My sister wanted to sing. She was older than me. I said, I want to preach. And all the kids started laughing. And uh, she brought me to the bishop. And Bishop Washington said, don't laugh at him. Maybe God's called him to preach. This is a fundamentalist Pentecostal church. And at the anniversary, there was about 900 people there. They stood me on a box because I was too short to stand behind the pulpit. And I preached from St. John's 14th chapter, first verse, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. July 9th, 1959, I'll never forget it. And I've been preaching ever since. By the time I was seven, I was preaching at different churches around Brooklyn, New York, and the tri-state area. Your father left when you were young? Left when I was 10. Uh, we had, he was a businessman, owned uh, a, uh, a construction company and a corner store. Uh, we moved to Queens, had a nice home. He walked out uh, with my stepsister. And uh, my mother had to move my sister and I uh, to the middle of uh, Brownsville, Brooklyn. And uh, I uh, grew up from that part on, on welfare, using food stamps. Uh, and uh, my mother was wise enough to put uh, male, strong male figures in my life. Well, it's been said that you actually have two fathers, James Brown and the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Tell me about your relationships with them both. I met uh, Reverend Jackson when I was 12. My mother saw me uh, looking all the time at the news and getting intrigued with Adam Clayton Powell and civil rights in New York and watching what was going on in the South. And I kept saying, I want to go meet him. I want to be a part of this. I want to be part of the rallies uh, that uh, they were having against certain uh, uh, biases and racism. And... Uh, she became very concerned because she was a fundamentalist, Pentecostal, don't do that, that's of the world kind of mentality. She took me to Bishop Washington, who was the one to let me start preaching. He took me to Reverend Dr. William Augustus Jones, Jr., who was the uh, head of the New York branch of Martin Luther King's organization. King uh, was in the last year of his life. I had seen King twice as a kid at my church, but didn't know him, obviously. I'm 12 years old. And uh, uh, Bill Jones, William Jones said, we know what to do with him. Bring him into our chapter. He can be our youth director because all the young people in all the churches know him and they'll come in and join. And when we have picket lines in March, they'll give us young troops. He introduced me to Jesse Jackson. And uh, Jesse Jackson was at that time twice my age. I was 12. He was about 25, 26. And I liked him. He was different than the other ministers. He had a big afro, used to wear a medallion and turtleneck. And he wasn't interested in pastoring a church. He never pastored a church. And he was had a rhythm that I liked. I may be poor, I may be poor. but I am, but I am. somebody. somebody. I may be hungry. And he would stay on me, though, more than anybody, probably to this day. He became like the mentor. Uh, and a lot of what I've done in National Action Network, I learned from him. So he was like a teacher to me, how you can do uh, things dramatic, but keep it nonviolent, how you address politics. James Brown, I met when I was 18. James Brown had just lost a son. He had just lost his son, Teddy, who was my age. Uh, Teddy had come to New York to go to Columbia Law School. He wanted to go. I don't know if he was accepted. Got killed in a car accident. 
And some disc jockeys in New York told him, if you want to memorialize your son, your son had joined this youth group by this teenage preacher, and uh, you should do uh, the concert in memory of him and donate to that youth group. That's how I met James Brown. We kind of clicked. I think I became psychologically a replacement for Teddy to him. He had other children, but Teddy was the same age and ambitious and I was. And I think with me, he became the father I didn't have because the only recreational memories I had of my father was he used to take me to the parlor to see James Brown. There's a new documentary film out called Loudmouth. Yeah, y'all say we're crazy. You've driven us crazy. 400 years of abuse. And it juxtaposes your early life in activism and in front of the camera with you now, you talking to the camera. And in the run-up to this film, it has been said that you were approached on three conditions. One, that you would have no editorial input into the film. Two, that it would be written and directed by a white producer in California, whose name is Josh Alexander. And three, the title would be Loudmouth. And it has been said, or you have said, that initially resisted the third condition. That's but you true. came around to it. That's true. When they said the first two, I agree. No editorial control, fine. Want a white producer because you want to make it a film that looks through uh, eyes of somebody totally objective and not even racially involved. But loudmouth, I said, let me think about that. And I thought about it. And I called back Kadar Massenberg, who was part of the executive producers with John Legend, the entertainer. And I said, yeah, I'll go with that. I said, as long as you let me explain why Loudmouth. And I said, unlike the people I studied, like Dr. King, like Reverend Jackson, who mentored me, they were born in the South. I was born and raised in New York. In the South, you could have a march or rally, put out a press release, and it became an issue. In New York... I'm competing with Broadway lights, uh, Broadway theaters, Statue of Liberty, all kinds of things, Radio City. You had to be loud and do things dramatic to even make an issue in New York. So I had to be a loudmouth. That was part of the strategy. So I had never thought about this, actually, until I, I heard that explanation. But are you saying that the nature of fighting for civil rights in New York necessarily looks different than anywhere else in the country? I think it is very different anywhere else in the country because New York as a city is very different. And New York had enjoyed this image of liberalism because uh, people assumed that all of the real uh, visceral racism was in the South. And those of us that were born and raised in New York knew that was not the case. But how do you dramatize that or bring that to people without being loud and dramatic. So when I would march in uh, neighborhoods that did not want blacks, and they would come out by the hundreds, whites would come out by the hundreds, waving watermelons, saying the N-word at us, it made our point. And people around the country were saying, I didn't know New York was like that. They, it was all one thing for executives in New York to say, that's them down in Mississippi. Isn't that a shame? That's them down in Alabama. What about right here in New York where you live? And I think that's one of the reasons I was, for so long, was uh, so controversial because I was taking the veil off of the Northern racism that controlled the media, that controlled entertainment, that controlled finance, Wall Street here. They did not want people to say, 
Is that how y'all behave in New York? Well, that brings me to Howard Beach. Hate on Earth. That's how the New York Daily News described a savage racial attack in New York City last weekend. The attack took place in 1986. A 23-year-old black man named Michael Griffith ended up in an all-white neighborhood because his car broke down. And he was brutally attacked by a mob of white men. And then in fleeing for his life, was hit by a car and killed. Right. then Governor Mario Cuomo appointed a special prosecutor to handle the case. And ultimately, nine convictions were handed down related to Griffith's death. And you were at the front and center of the entire incident as it played out in the courts and in the media. What do people today need to understand about the situation in Howard Beach, Queens in 1986? What they need to understand is when I got the call from someone close to Michael Griffith. And I went out to uh, see the family at their request. They were saying in the media and put out there by the neighborhood that maybe they were out here for no good. Maybe they were trying to rob. And I said, no, they were victims of racism, just like the survivors said. Michael Griffith had two people in the car with him. Both of them said they were chased by a gang using racial epithets and they chased him to his death. And they said, but how do we prove that? I said, I know how to prove it. We'll take a motorcade and go to Howard Beach. They said, what's that going to do? I said, just let me do it. And we had a motorcade. And uh, we went out and uh, drove uh, scores of cars into Howard Beach, got out the cars, and they went crazy. Then we called a march for that Saturday. And uh, uh, 1,500 people, Ben Hooks of the NAACP was head then, uh, helped lead that march, and uh, Reverend Herbert Daughtry. And they were lined up on both sides of the street yelling the N-word, get out our neighborhood. And you see in the documentary, they would say right to the camera the N-word. They had no shame. This was not anything. And and then I think when people saw that, the whole thing of were they out there for no good went away, which led to Governor Cuomo, Mario Cuomo appointing special prosecutor and led to some convictions. Critics often say that you did what you did for publicity and you would say, yep, that's right. That's exactly right. Others say you try to infuriate people intentionally, and you say, yep, that's exactly right. And and I I say that to say, if there was not some racial fury there, how could I bring that out of them? I didn't go to any of these neighborhoods and pass out watermelons the night before and say, we'll be here at 12 tomorrow, and I'll come out here and do this. They did this. I mean, for people, I marched in Bensonhurst, the Yusuf Hawkins case, 29 Saturdays consecutively was stabbed by a guy there one time. And every Saturday, they were out there acting in a very racial way. They saw the news and knew how they were being depicted. They didn't care because they believed we did not belong in that neighborhood and they had the right to take uh, things into their own hands, including trying to kill me. I will never buy down to one of these chicken shit Negroes that have done nothing but kiss crackers behind all their life. Your style has changed noticeably over the years. Uh, And that's evidenced through this documentary film. You credit, at least in part, Coretta Scott King for saying to you, quote, you can either go for the crown that we talk about in Christianity or you can go for the crowd. You choose, you've got to choose. Tell me more about that. I had made a decision that I was going to build an organization and I wanted to build it 
clearly around the principles of Dr. King. Because sometimes, as we fight in these cases, you get people from other ideological and tactical backgrounds. And I said, but I want a church-based defined movement. I began working very closely with Martin Luther King III, who was about three, four years younger than me. And he bonded me with his mother. And I remember his mother uh, was in New York, and we got into a conversation. And she had a very imperial manner and a way of talking to you where it was very clear what she was saying, but it wasn't offensive. And she said in her own uh, majestic way, Al, let me ask you something. Why did you say this or that? And I said, well, and I was trying to explain it. She says, but that's not in the tradition of, of Martin and what we do. I said, yeah, but you got to understand people are angry and I was angry. She says, in Christianity, we don't try to go for the crowd. You're going for the applause. We go for the crown to bring people to the level God would want us to be. And this is Mrs. Coretta Scott King. This is Martin Luther King's widow. I think if anybody else had said that, I would probably be debating them till now. But for her to take time and invest in me, I started changing a lot of how I would deal with language. I didn't change marching. I marched all the way through till now. I led the largest gathering around George Floyd. I mean, my tactics didn't change, but I didn't allow myself to use excessive language. I was using the N-word, calling whites name, all of that. I said, that does not represent the message that we're doing. And uh, I think Mrs. King was the one that really made me have to deal with that. She helped you change your rhetoric? She helped me change my rhetoric, and she helped me take more seriously the tradition that I was representing that I grew up in. Of all the cases you've been front and center in, there's one that you write in your own words that you're indelibly linked to. Of course, you know that the case is the case of Tawana Brawley. Right. Last November, Tawana Brawley was found dumped along a road in Dutchess County. Of course, she was a, at the time, a 15-year-old girl who alleged that she was kidnapped and repeatedly raped by six white men, including by law enforcement officers. And like other cases, you are front and center of that case uh, as it played out both in the media and in the courts. Uh, you served as an advisor to her family and throughout the grand jury investigation, which ultimately found her story to be a hoax. The recent film, you say to the camera that your position in the case has been distorted. How so? My position was that there was this allegation from this young lady. There was really questionable uh, behavior by some that she accused. She deserved to have a day in court. Let us bring the case to court. And this prosecutor would not do that. Uh, I didn't get involved in the case till it was two or three months in, in uh, when the lawyers who had been the Howard Beach lawyers had, had asked me to come involved. And I don't see why that is any different than when I stood up a year and a half later for five guys arrested for rape in Central Park of a white woman, five black and brown kids. I believed them and said they deserve a day in court. Some of them went to jail, those five boys, for 15 years and ended up being acquitted. So I ended up being exonerated. They never were acquitted. So I'm not an investigator. I am an activist, and if I believe there's credible people, as those lawyers were in Brawley, credible people as they were in uh, uh, Central Park Five, I get involved. 
35 years later, how do you understand what happened to Twana Brown? I don't have any different understanding uh, because a grand jury is not a trial. And there's a, a famous saying by a judge in New York, you can indict a, a, a ham sandwich if you want. That same prosecutor charged me with taking money from my youth group and we beat him in court. So why would I believe what he did with a grand jury when I saw what he did to me? You mean nothing has changed in 35 years? Absolutely nothing. For you? In terms of the reason I got involved, I do not in any way change that. And, and it is the same reasoning I've used in other cases. Do you think that you were misled in the case of Twana Brawley? I have no evidence that I was misled. What is the evidence that I was misled? She is, to this day, to my knowledge, stuck with a story. I haven't talked to her in 25 years. And her lawyers have. I think people want me to redo a case rather than deal with why I was involved with the case. But do you think she told you the truth? Her lawyers is who I talked to. I'm not going to ask a 15-year-old girl all the details that you said. I have no reason to feel she misled the lawyers. If you believe nothing has changed in 35 years of Twana Brawley, do you still believe that there was misjustice in that case? And if that's the case, why wouldn't you be agitating for justice? I believe that it never went to court. And therefore, we do not know what evidence was presented that backed up what he presented to a grand jury. But the justice process determined that her accusations were a lie. That is not the justice. The justice system has a grand jury that says that they either believe or disbelieve what the prosecutor uh, presents. She has no representation. And I'm saying that those that raised the question to me, since the only one that goes in front of a grand jury is the prosecutor, that I'm supposed to then believe the prosecutor who went in front of a grand jury against me and I proved him wrong. Where is the evidence from her lawyers then that she was telling the truth? They would do that in court, wouldn't they? And they never got a court case. If you believed fundamentally that there was a misjustice in her case and you believed her, it seems like Al Sharpton would still be advocating for her. If I were still advocating for her and the lawyers were asking me to do so, I would. I've done tens of thousands of cases since then that we don't uh, pick up the cases. We operate based, and this is before there was a national action network, but I'm answering the questions raised to me. And, and, and I think people need to understand the process. People call us every day. Those cases that we feel are credible, we get involved. And we stay involved as long as the, as the victim or the alleged victim asks us to be involved. There's a sense that, well, this case, in your words, is indelibly linked to you, that the best posture for you and that you've decided is just not to apologize. You said, once you begin bending, it's, did you bend today? Or did I miss the apology? Say it again. And once you start compromising, you lose respect for yourself. That's a quote from you. Tell me more about that. Well, I think that you have to characterize me saying that in the right context. First, uh, what, is, what am I apologizing for? Believing two lawyers that had just helped to win the case in Howard Beach, so I should apologize, I shouldn't believe them? And why, why am I sorry that I didn't believe them? Should I apologize for believing the Central Park Five who was exonerated? So what is, tell me what an apology would sound like. 35 years later, nothing has changed for you. I think I've answered that. Okay. 
1999, NYPD officers fired on an unarmed black man, Amadou Diallo. 41 times they killed him. All four officers in that case were acquitted. And yet 20 years later, after the death of another unarmed black man, George Floyd, this time the officer, Derek Chauvin, was convicted. Was the death of George Floyd a tipping point in the progress for American civil rights? I think that it became a tipping point uh, when I saw people all over the world, literally, uh, marching. And I remember when we used to do these cases, we may get a crowd in, uh, uh, in one or two cities, but this went global. And I think the thing that struck me is that I would go to some rallies to speak and there were more whites than blacks. And that's when I said, this is something different now. And uh, unlike the Diallo case in 1999, uh, we had a grand jury led by a prosecutor indicted them, and then there was a trial. And I remember preparing the family of George Floyd, who was talking to the, his brother Philonis and them, and I was saying to them on the way to see the verdict, now, you know, he may, they may get acquitted because we'd gone through so many years of that. And uh, or we may get one charge or something. And I'm preparing them for the letdown because I had done two of the funerals of George Floyd. We'd gotten close. And uh, when I stood there and heard that judge say all three guilty, tears just started rolling down my eyes because I believe maybe it all wasn't for nothing. During the pandemic, the national homicide rate reached its highest level since the 1990s. And in New York City, crime rose 23.5% in 2022, and many other cities are experiencing rising crime. There's been a political backlash because of this against all sorts of police reforms and criminal justice reforms. And you had a summit last week with Black leaders in New York about reducing crime. What were the takeaways, the policy prescriptions? I think that the takeaways was that we, first of all, I called it because this is the first time in the history of the city of New York, or the state of New York even, that you have so many black office holders at the top, black majority leader of the New York State Senate, black speaker of the New York State Assembly, black DAs in uh, two counties, black mayor, I mean, every black speaker of the New York City Council. So I'm saying that when I was a kid running around behind Adam Clayton Powell, we never dreamed of this kind of power. How come we are not sitting in a room saying how we deal with crime and reform at the same time? Why are we taking shots at each other? And we had a great state attorney general, Tish James. We had a great meeting saying that their teams are going to work on how they can work together around how we deal with crime, gun violence, and reform at the same time, rather than continue to be pitted against each other by the press. Are there policy prescriptions? Yeah, there are. And I think that they probably will be unveiled very shortly but oh, because we want all of them in agreement. Uh, but there are, and I think we had to first start with a conversation. Um, there's a record number of black candidates who ran for Senate and governor in the midterm elections. Uh, Black voter turnout actually fell. Uh, support for Democrats amongst black men has fallen in every national election since 2012, as you well know. You've warned about the trend. 
Why are Democrats losing ground with non-white voters? I think that a lot of Democrats uh, have began trying to stay away from issues that are concerning to blacks, thinking it will cost them votes uh, in other areas. And I've said to them that you cannot sacrifice your base, black voters, to try to get people that may or not, may not vote for you. And I think the evidence of it is that a lot of black turnout went down. Uh, some of it may be caused by voter suppression tactics, some of it by lack of enthusiasm. Uh, uh, because I've challenged, when we have our National Action Network convention, we have all the candidates there in 16 and 20, all the way back to 07. And we say, address our issues, talk to us. People respond when you talk to them about their concerns. And Democrats aren't doing that well enough. I don't think they've done it uh, well enough. Ironically, uh, one person that has done it pretty well is Joe Biden. Joe Biden uh, has dealt forthrightly with the issue. I remember when George Floyd happened. Joe Biden came to Houston the day before the last funeral and met with the family. I was in the room and came out aggressively. Joe Biden at 91, uh, unprovoked uh, by any of us, got on that stage and said in the black America, uh, I, I owe you because you came through for me. You don't hear a lot of Democrats saying that in state races and cities. Quite a races. journey for Joe Biden. Quite a journey. I used to disagree with Joe Biden in the 90s, uh, where uh, he was one of the ones that engineered the omnibus crime bill that I felt uh, disproportionately put a lot of blacks in jail with the disproportionate sentencing that Bill Clinton initiated. I ended up being right about that. And, uh, uh, but Joe Biden uh, and I, later became very, very uh, communicative and we communicate a lot and we got to be friendly. Then when he became vice president to Barack Obama for eight years, we worked together on many things. So by the time he ran and became president, we had had a, a decades age relationship. Well, he has a historic vice president in Kamala Harris who actually polls lower amongst black voters than Joe Biden does himself. Why has she not been a catalyzing force for black voters? I think that the media puts her in, a, in a, a, a tricky position. If she becomes too aggressive, she's not acting like vice president because vice president doesn't get out ahead of the president. If she doesn't, then why isn't she doing more? What did Joe Biden do when he was vice president? He didn't get out ahead of Obama. Uh, mm, what did Pence do? Maybe he did on gay marriage. Well, but that came, that was leaked out. That was not. Yeah, he, he said he said it in the press interview. In interview. He didn't go holding rallies. I mean, they, they act like they want Kamala Harris to go out there and lead the charge. She's doing what vice presidents do, and I think she's doing it well. But she doesn't have the kind of supporter energy around that that is commensurate to, frankly, the historic nature of her vice presidency. I think because the profile has been where it is as a vice president. But I will say this. I've known uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, since she was running in California. And one thing I can advise you is don't ever underestimate Kamala Harris. Another person um, you've known for decades is Hakeem Jeffries, the new minority leader of the House of Representatives. He was involved in National Action Network early on. Right. Tell me about your relationship with him. I met Hakeem when he was a young uh, man, lawyer, ran for the New York State Assembly, lost. 
he had joined National Action Network, would come to some of our rallies, uh, was involved uh, when we did the Diallo movement in the 90s and others. And he would always say to me, now, Reverend Al, I'm not the guy to go to jail with you. I'm not the guy to lay down in front of the barricades, but I will deal with policy and I'm a, a, a lawyer. He was always very balanced, very studious, very serious. You, this, the Hakeem Jeffries you see now is the one we knew in Brooklyn 25 years ago. Very balanced, very serious. And I think that it has worked for him and I think it'll work for the country. Uh, he will tell you yes or no and stand behind what he says. And I think he is probably one of the most engaging uh, political leaders we have on the American scene. New York also has its second black mayor. You, you of course, were around and thick in the middle of the first black mayor's right. tenure. But Eric Adams was one of the signing members of the National Action Network's uh, charter. Right. When legal we charter. started, uh, he was one of the signatures on our uh, original incorporation papers 32 years ago. And he was a cop. And, uh, but he was one that stood with us on police brutality. He was one that eventually was elected to the state Senate and had bills on, on police reform and on uh, criminal justice reform. But he also was strong on, we need to have law and order in our community in a balanced way. What he's saying now, he always said, and uh, he is now the mayor. But he is one that uh, is not afraid to take positions that may or may not be popular to some that call themselves progressive. He really believes that we have to have a perfect balance of fighting crime and having reform at the same time. How's he doing as mayor? I think in the first year, if you look at the things that they've been able to uh, deal with from COVID all the way to crime stats going down, I think he's done well. Is there more he could be doing? I think that given what he faced, I think he's done very well. And I think that I told him early, the media uh, the honeymoon is not going to last long. And now they cover more who he has had to, uh, to dinner with than they cover that he's literally brought crime down. It's increased police budgets. He's increased police budgets, brought crime down, has dealt with the issues of trying to put some kind of correlation with the education system. And he's brought in all kinds of resources around the COVID uh, problem that we had that was at a higher proportion when he came in. And he's got had to deal with migrant workers and all. Look what he had to deal with that was unexpected. I think he's done well. I've heard you have had conversations with Mayor Adams, similar in nature to the kind that Jesse Jackson had with you about his role now in the public eye and becoming a leader and stepping into the shoes of previous generations of black leaders in this country. I've said to him that uh, you are in a, on a bigger platform and that it's bigger than people around you think. And uh, I said this in admonishment, just as a, as a bigger brother to a little brother. And I'd say to him, Jesse, Jackson, who meant to be since I was 12, said to me, you're going national now. You've got to wear that and be mindful of that. And sometimes the people around you are not mindful of that. You've got to protect what has been entrusted in you. And uh, I tell him that all the time. I try to share with him what I think I had a great teacher share with me. Are some of the people around Mayor Adams not aware 
I, of I'm the not, size of the know. platform. I don't know. I'm not talking about anyone specific. I'm just giving them general advice. You mentioned Jesse Jackson. Reverend Jackson appeared on the original firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. in 1971 in a discussion about how to achieve progress in this country. It is the very fact that as much progress has been made as you've appointed to uh, testimony uh, to the flexibility of the American system and its general hospitality uh, to to what it is that you desire to achieve. Well, it, it, it appears to be more hostile to change than hospitable. However, I'm not sure that that phenomenon is any different in a place else than here. People in power tend to be hostile to change. Uh, parents tend to be hostile to change. I mean, everything tends to be hostile to change. And, the fact is, either you change or you, or you bust or you die. The thing that's most disappointing about America is that America has the potential to be the greatest country in the history of the world. The question is, how soon will this country actualize her potential? How soon will it take to actualize our potential? One thing before we deal with the content, what he said, look how he used to dress in 71. You talk about me growing, look at... That was the Jesse Jackson I knew, big afro, chain around his neck. Uh, you wonder where I got it from? Maybe I was just a good student. I don't wonder at all. <laughs> but no, when will it realize? And and here I am, 52 years after a Reverend Jones and Reverend Jesse Jackson brought me in the movement, asking the same questions and raising them in my own way. You say it's improved. It's improved but it's not there yet. It's like if you and I uh, would get on a flight and uh, head to Washington, D.C., if they say we are over Baltimore, we've improved. We're much further away from New York, but don't open the door. We're not, we haven't landed. Don't get off the plane. We haven't landed yet. We're not there yet. We're better than we was, but we're not where we need to be. Where is the next generation of civil rights leaders coming from? I think they're going to come uh, organically. I think that uh, nobody saw my generation coming. Who would have thought that I would have done what I did? Uh, I don't think that there will ever be a time that there will not be people in the black community, in the Latino community, Asian community, Jewish community, LGBT community, that will not uh, be able to produce the leaders for that time. You've been in New York politics for decades. I want to ask you about a couple of people whose careers have intertwined with yours okay. over time. And one of them is, is Rudy Giuliani. I mean, he was known nationally. Then even after 9-11, he was known internationally. And in the last 20 years, you've seen a real fall from grace, especially on the recent anniversary, two years after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. In the meantime, your star has catapulted. You are now a revered civil rights, elder statesmen. I mean, these are two trajectories that have just crossed. I think that Rudy Giuliani is a tragic story. Uh, I never agreed with him. He ran against the first black mayor, David Dinkins, lost the first time, won the second time. And despite a very hostile uh, period in his term with the black community, he uh, became America's mayor after 9-11. And to go from that pedestal down, uh, even I, as one that was critical to him, can't make sense of that. Uh, I think that the problem with Rudy Giuliani 
is that his core beliefs was always political power and not political change. And he was willing to, uh, in his reaching for political power through Donald Trump, give up a legacy that might have done him and his family well. We look at those pictures of you in that documentary where you were once weighed over 300 pounds and your image is just such a stark contrast. Everyone always wants to know, how'd you do it? You know, they used to do cartoons on me about how fat I was. And my youngest daughter one day, uh, I was going out, I had on a tracksuit, and she touched me on the stomach and said, Daddy, you're fat. That hurt my feelings. None of the cartoons in the tabloids bothered me. So I said, I'm gonna lose weight. And I dieted a little here and there. But in 2001, I helped to lead a protest in Vieques, Puerto Rico, uh, where they were doing Navy bombing exercises that was causing asthma uh, uh, numbers to rise with the young children in, in that part of Puerto Rico. And we sat in on the Navy base and they arrested us. And a federal judge gave me 90 days in jail, three months. And I fasted 40 of those days and lost a lot of weight. When I came out, I began changing my diet. And now I'm a vegetarian. I uh, do not eat any meat. I eat only a couple of slices of whole wheat toast. That's my only starch. I eat raw salads and fruits. And I work out every morning about 35 uh, minutes. No surgery, nothing. And I've lost in the last five years 178 pounds. The hardest part is keeping it off. But now I've settled in on this diet and this workout routine, and I'm fine. Who's your successor? I have no idea, and I would not even venture to say. I'm sure out of the thousands of young students Jesse Jackson had, he would not say I was going to be the one to do what I did. And I'm sure Dr. King couldn't have seen Jesse coming, and that's just in our tradition. I'm sure uh, Barack Obama couldn't have predicted uh, Hakeem Jeffries. I think what you do, the Bible says, is that a good uh, farmer, sower of seeds, you cast your seeds, some are going to hit uh, stone, some will hit fertile ground. I'm one that sows seeds. Whoever grows, we'll see. On Monday, the nation will be celebrating Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a day that honors Martin Luther King, our nation's foremost civil rights leader. How will you be celebrating on Martin Luther King Day? I will have all of the public officials uh, in New York State speak at our headquarters, the House of Justice, about what they have done in the legislation, legislative area of then that, or in whatever area then, to make Dr. King's dream more reality. And that morning, we have our Washington, D.C. Bureau. I'll be there. And we honor, among others, Nancy Pelosi for the years that she was the speaker and helped us fight for civil rights. And the uh, daughter-in-law of Martin Luther King, who uh, has kept the fight going as the head of the Drum Major Institute. So we do two cities on that day trying to keep the King dream alive. Reverend Al Sharpton, I very much appreciate your candor and your being here on Firing Line. And I appreciate yours. And I appreciate you asking me questions that people want me to answer. Mm -hmm.